Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning, Good morning International Sangha. I think today is the first day of spring. Is that tomorrow? It's the last day of winter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm noticing a real impact of being in a room of, of bodies, uh, digital and otherwise. This is the first time I think in two years just about two years that this feeling of being in a room with more than uh, two people. Now um, it's such a beautiful day here. It's really, <laughs> things are happening <laughs> on the inside. So it's so lovely to see all of you here. So I thought I would talk today about what feels like a good day for some Dharma vegetables. The, the basics, like the basic, the most basic of the basics. And so I thought I would start by a very quick invitation for us to collectively name the Four Noble Truths in as non-jargony, but contemporary um, parlance, if you will. Like when you think of noble truth number one, how do you translate it to yourself? And then noble truth number two, three, and four. And I'd just like us to name them together. So if you have a good translation of say number one, please volunteer. Something happens that I hadn't planned for, prepared for, or wanted. And uh, so it's not a happy situation. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm caught off guard. Mm -hmm. An element of surprise. That isn't yes. always great. Yeah. Any other volunteers for number one? Okay. Uh, uh, my thought is um, whatever happens, I have a, uh, a reaction in my lizard brain, liking, not liking, feeling that I can ignore it because it's neutral. How do we translate number two? Um, I was thinking back to, to number one and uh, considering how, for me, that really revolves around my own inner critic. And I think when I consider 
noble truth number two, it's reconciling the fact that my own inner critic will be with me as long as I draw breath. I now have another uh, translation of number two. Well, I think it's what he was saying. It's our automatic reaction. His automatic reaction mm -hmm. is his inner critic hops to, and it's just what happens, what what we feel immediately after. Okay. Yeah, that's thank you. These are both really wonderful examples. I think uh, the, the the slightly more uh, standard version of number two is something like. Uh, the reason we have unhappiness is because we tend to have preferences and become attached to the ways we want things to be. And it's those attachments to our own opinions and desires that are the source of a lot of our uh, suffering. What's a popular, uh, what's your understanding of uh, noble truth number three? There's a way to end suffering. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's sort of, right. Good news. <laughs> <laughs> There's a way to make, call it the bad things, stop or cease or end and let's keep it simple for the, for now and what's noble truth number four okay rosemary uh the eightfold path is the way to and this yeah so right so to complete that it's pretty intimately bound with number three good news there's a way and that way is listed in the eightfold path which includes a series of um a better word than injunctions or right. well right right intention right um right speech um a pr more like appropriate to the situation right uh, modes of being uh modes of practicing ways of doing things if you do if you focus on these eight things that is going to be the way you get yourself out of the unnecessary pain and suffering so that's the warm-up for my talk and i thought it was important for us to remember that the the overall arch here but I, I uh, realized something uh, in conversation with Flint not too long ago, that there's something really curious about the way the Four Noble Truths are, are structured. And the way I've often understood them for a long time is, is, uh, is, is a little bit metaphorically in that we are given, let's say, in the first two, a diagnosis and the diagnosis is in a sense the news is bad like what we get if we're born into this human body and life 
without exception, is some amount of suffering. And then the second half of the Four Noble Truths says something like, but good news, there's a cure to the illness. So it's to me, it'll often read as a kind of medical um, structure. Doctor comes in, says, patient, you're sick. Here's why you're sick. But if you take my prescribed medicines, you will feel better. Does that resonate at all? Does that sound at all familiar? Like this kind of habit, this, if, this metaphor, if I map it onto it, does that resonate at all? There's, I know from lots of conversation with people, Buddhism or Dharmic teachings can often lead people into uh, doubt and despair if they're not careful, if they're hanging out only in the first half. <laughs> I was just going to add that I think oftentimes a common interpretation of the first one is that it is said this way, life is suffering. Right. And I think that's particularly can be disheartening for, you know, anyone to hear, you know, just to define life that way, as opposed to saying that, you know, life involves, you know, a fair amount of suffering. Right, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I often translate that myself to life is full of dis-ease which softens the blow of the that word suffering because this ease or not being comfortable is just like we have that every single day, no matter what, whether we're in good health, bad health, we still feel this ease in one way or another. But so anyway, but uh, the interesting thing is we're not, when um, there's a, there's a quote by Joko Beck that I recently encountered in one of the best books I've read in, in many years, it's called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. So this book is actually a, you would probably find it in the like productivity section, I'm guessing. It's kind of like a, uh, it's probably miscategorized in the, in the self-development, business, how to be more productive section of the bookstore. If you want to go look for it, <laughs> that's probably where it will live. But interestingly enough, the epigraph of this book has a quote by Joko Beck. So that Joko Beck is our uh, teacher's teacher. So a founding presence and root of, of Apamata. So it's very unusual for me to come across a Joko Beck quote in a business book. And here's what the quote says. What makes it unbearable is your mistaken belief that it can be cured. Sure. What makes it unbearable is your mistaken belief that it can be cured. So I think there are many levels to all this, but on the simplest level, 
or maybe not simplest, but for me, the most direct impact I have when I hear this quote by, by our Zen teacher, it feels to me like it's not exactly aligned with the Four Noble Truths. Like on the, if the, if, if what I'm, if you take what I'm saying sincerely, like that the Four Noble Truths say bad news, but there's a cure, Joko here saying, what makes your own suffering particularly bad is that you think there's a cure. Which is a little bit of a, I would call tension between the two ways of seeing things. So let me speak a little bit about, let me uh, unpack that a little bit and then invite you guys to share how, <laughs> what I say uh, lands with you. This Joko's quote, I think, has the following ingredients in it. I think one of the main things she's saying is that as people in general, we spend a lot of our time trying to avoid fully experiencing our realities. that so much of our effort is a kind of resisting that which actually is. And that which actually is, is called our life. And our life looks exactly the way it looks. But there's something about human nature that says, I don't want that, or I want something else. If I'm healthy, I want to be even healthier and stronger. If I'm comfortable, I want to be rich. If I'm sick, I want to be healthy. If I live in this place, I want to live in some other place. If I live in some other place, I want to live in this place. And it's an endless uh, unfolding of I, whatever I have, it's just not what I want. So I want this other thing. And out of that comes, I think, what I think uh, Barry Magid, another uh, of Joko's students, now teachers, he likes to call a secret practice. That even if we as Zen practitioners are meditating and showing up to the zendo and eating our vegetables and so forth we still spiritual vegetables we still secretly whether consciously but more often subconsciously uh refuse to admit to ourselves that this whatever we're dealing with really truly is the way it is and we secretly aspire to find a cure. That we continually, we just cannot <laughs> take that last step and say, no, this really is the case. And so we continue sort of finding new kind of um, ways to cure ourselves. And I think for me personally, one of the trickiest things is Zen practice itself. <laughs> 
in a lot of ways is uh, a way to say, well, if I do this practice in this really dedicated way or smart way or committed way or spiritual way, whatever, then I will be better. Which is yet, I think, if you go back to what Joko was saying, what makes it unbearable is your mistaken belief that it can be cured. Because Zen practice is not about, call it, happiness. Zen practice is about something else. But making that leap is very hard. And so I want to tell you a little bit more about what I found in this wonderful book, 4,000 Weeks. Which, by the way, 4,000 weeks is approximately how many weeks we have uh, on Earth, each one of us. Uh, and there's a wonderful app I discovered which takes your current age and turns each uh, of the remaining weeks you have or years into a little ball and it drops all the balls on the screen so you could see how many balls you have left. And then, you know, it's like a, a cup, you turn it over and you watch the ingredients spill out and the feeling I got when I saw it is, wait, where's the rest of it? Because <laughs> you could see all the remaining balls like in the bottom quarter of the screen. Anyway, uh, uh, so uh, in this book, one of the things that Oliver Berkman, the author, says is that a lot of uh, productivity gurus and systems and modules and the way that you, you sort of uh, buy into making your life run more smoothly, they all involve uh, sort of getting better and more efficient at how you do things, but there's a trap in that which is that as you get more efficient at doing whatever, call it your job or running your household, look, it always turns out that there's more stuff to do. So if you simply do it more efficiently, you will then have more stuff to do more efficiently. So if you, <laughs> if you answer all your emails and get to inbox zero, people will say, think, oh, there's a person that gets stuff done. I'm going to send more stuff to them. And then it's a never ending. There is no way out of the efficiency trap. Which I think in, in call it spiritual terms is equivalent to me to the self improvement trap. The more you do, the more you practice from, from this mindset, the, the more trapped you become in thinking that there's a cure to thing that you're trying to solve with your spiritual practice. It's sort of like the myth of Sisyphus, always pushing up the boulder and it just always rolls back down. And so here is the question I invite you to sit with for, let's, let's say a minute. I want you to really take some time and consider what happens. Notice what happens for you on the inside when I ask you this. 
what would happen if you truly admitted you won't ever get better? Maybe I'll rephrase that one alternate way. What happens when you hear me say to you, this is as good as you will ever be? This is your peak. No matter what. So I'm curious if anything came up for any of you in response to that question. Nelda? <laughs> My deepest thought and feeling was to say to everyone, I am so sorry for all the unintentional harm I know I'm going to cause you. Mm. Mm. I'm so sorry. Regret. So sorrow. Lauren? I felt a little relief. Mm. It's like, ah. <laughs> and I imagine myself just sort of settling a little more deeply onto my cushion and just, um, yeah, it was a little bit of a relief. And I'm thinking of Dogen right now um, saying, realization is effort without desire. Clear water all the way to the bottom, a fish swims like a fish. Mm -hmm. Blue sky transparent throughout, a bird flies like a bird. It sort of just takes out all preference and desire and just being. And that's what I got for me. I think I had a really complicated feelings about this because. Um, I thought about the, the just being and a kind of sense of uh, like gratitude for what is, but then I thought about the war in Ukraine and um, all the like all the complicated feelings of both joy and beauty and suffering that just are. And one of the things I've been trying to Kind of allow space for is my um, sadness and about what's happening and it it's um but i i can't say that that's not without preference you know i want as a buddhist for there to be less suffering and so it's complicated because it is what is but i still have this kind of desire for the world to be different so that that's not happening and so I feel complicated feelings about that because uh, um, I can't let go of that wanting to help you know? and that is a beautiful personal expression of the bodhisattva vow 
that delusions are inexhaustible, we vow to end them. And both are true. So we have some sorrow, regret, some relief, and some sadness. Oh, Mary wants to share her thoughts. Hi. Uh, immediately when when you said that, I, again, I felt a whole, I think, host of parts come up and excuse my French, but part of it was like, fuck no. And then it was like the relief. And so it was it was like this. Um, I think Cersei is saying similar, like a complicated uh, response to it all of a lot of different parts that that came came up I'd like to say that I felt a sense of peace of like oh my gosh but I also just recognize how strong my own preferences and um, desires are for things to or like the aspiration for things to be better and um, I think when um, when the comment was said that this is as good as it will ever be, the part of me that aspires for things, it just kind of was like, no, no, it was in direct opposition to that. Um, so anyway, that's 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 again my my sense of what was going on. It was both and um, some of what people are saying. Um, Strong part of me is like, oh, great. I'd love to just lie in that bed of like, okay, I think about the the movie. This is as good as it gets, all right? Not having to step on, on any cracks in the sidewalk. Um, and, and yeah, I have a strong part that aspires for that. That's all I have to share. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Christophe. I, the, my reaction sitting with what you said is, oh, I can stop obsessively focusing on myself. I can look up or I can raise my eyes. I can look around. I can see what's right in front of me, which has something to do with, you know, beauty and tragedy and mystery and, and all of that. But all these things that I've been cutting myself off from, they've been there all the time. Chris, your first question you asked and the way you worded it, I think it was, um, this This is about as good as it will ever be. And my first reaction, my initial, my reaction to that was doomed. Like, I just thought, oh, wow. So I'm going to suffer forever. I'm doomed. And then your second, the way you worded your second, the, the same thing, you said, let me rephrase it or something. Uh, you said, uh, this is your peak no matter what. For some reason, the way... That, my reaction to that was, oh, okay, so accept this, accept it, but yet the word peak, I think, is the one that made me think, yeah, but there is positivity. I've experienced good stuff, so even though I'm doomed, let me focus on the good stuff. So the second way you worried it uh, gave me some medicine, if you will. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, and I have That's the question. Uh, we have another. Oh, go ahead. Well, 
Naldo? Paul is right. I heard the first question on sort of a life as it is. And the way when you said this is your peak, I heard that on an individual level. Yeah, so yeah. we could take it right, we can interpret it different ways. My intention was slightly more personal, like uh, to acknowledge truly that you, no matter what, no matter how many vitamins you take, metaphorically speaking, you will never get healthy because this is as good as you will ever feel. To go back to that medical metaphor where, or comparison that I'm asking us to sit with, where the noble truth seem to imply there's a cure, and yet our Zen teacher, to read the quote again, says what makes it unbearable, or if I may, what makes life unbearable is your mistaken belief that it can be cured. And I'm not sure we will arrive at a neat answer, but there's this, this wide variety of responses to it from a sadness to relief is so interesting. <laughs> it kind of it does cover the, the <laughs> oh, the dynamic range of life's mysterious possibilities. Daisy. So, um, I really relate to Circe and, and Mary and it, um, a lot of gratitude came up for me and all of the, all of the worst of the worst, you know, personal and the state of the world. And um, so what I, what I was wanting to say earlier, Chris, is um, when you started out talking about life is suffering, um, what, what has helped me a lot is thinking about suffering. At, and I forget, I think it was Peg one time that sort of introduced this for me is like dukkha isn't just all the bad, it's everything that is. So it's all the good. And we suffer because we cling not, you know, it's not just the bad that's there, it's we're clean, you know, we want the good to last and it's everything that is, you know. Um, And so for me, it's like the medical model. It's a cure, that's, that's clinging, you know? That's us wanting to cling and, and make everything the way we want it, you know? So a cure isn't gonna occur. That doesn't mean good isn't gonna, isn't gonna you know, what we, what we see as good isn't gonna flow by again. All of it's gonna keep flowing, you know? Anyway, um, oh, and then also that sitting with the everything that is, I can also feel the pain of, of everything. And I can feel that, that desire for things to be better. And that is also part of everything.
that is, you know. Anyway, I, uh, yeah, that's what's coming up for me. Thank you, Darcy. Well, we come around onto this question often, don't we? And as Sophie reminded us, we're in the middle of a terrible war situation. And we, what, what can we do? We just do what we can do. And we're not gonna make things perfect, but that's what people do. And I don't know if I can do that in a Buddhist way, but to keep offering what we can, and we have a community too to live with. Those other the positive things around us as we carry on as best we can, knowing it's not gonna be perfect. We've lived through wars and gotten better and another one comes along. So we're not gonna all be good, but we do what we can do. So thank you, Joan. Uh, let, me, let me use that as, a, as a, a short segue to maybe tying this up with prequel for, for my next talk down the road, but it has to do with the sense of time and how In a world where we can admit both to ourselves and to each other that bad things or painful things will always happen, there's a tendency to want to, out of that, try to control things as much as we can. Because there's something deeply unpleasant about admitting that things are often challenging and we are helpless. Therefore, out of that helplessness, often we feel a strong urge to say, I'm going to therefore control as much as I possibly can in order to make things better, in order to cure things, in order to help, in order to all of the things. And what's interesting that I think what happens in the frame of when we do that in the time in the framework of time, we begin to think of time as something that we have. And once we have time, we become the arbiters and distributors of what to do with it. There's a self-help book called Master Your Time, Master Your Life. There's a dominant theme of, of in the face of this bad stuff, we want to control things and we want to control our time. Hence the efficiency trap and the getting better at things and being better daily planners and so forth. Because there's comfort, there's human mammalian comfort in feeling less out of control. So the more we control, the better we feel temporarily anyway. And that our Zen practice is an invitation to radically shift away from that desire of controlling and having into being. This is all of Dogen stuff. Being time is, is very different than having time. Because when you, in other words, the shift from I have time 
so that I can control it in order to do the things versus I am time and time will control me and time will put me into situations and I have then the choice to react appropriately to that situation, but I am the one in service of time as opposed to me being the one controlling time, mastering time. And it's that shift, I think, ultimately is what I think Joko is getting at in the end. If you can truly accept that things won't be cured, then you can make the shift from having time and controlling it and getting on the endless next to do, infinite things to do, to a kind of deep surrender of all of your ideas about how things are, should be, could be, who you want to be. And with that fullest, deepest of surrender, time then begins to move through you and you are its expression. And out of that, I think the promise of Zen really is deep sense of relief. It's nice to have time on your side as, as an ally, rather than it being something you're trying to master and control, for example. And I'll end with a quote to that, to that end, which is, uh, comes from the great playwright Tom Stoppard. And he wrote in, uh, in the play, The Coast of Utopia, because children grow up, we think a child's purpose is to grow up. But the child's purpose is to be a child. Nature does not disdain what only lives for a day. It pours the whole of itself into each moment. Life's bounty is in its flow. Maria, I still have uh, her hands up. Would you like to share something? I think Chris might have finished now, have you, Chris? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Nancy was just asking me if I wanted to share something, but I think you're coming to an end, are you now? Uh, no, I think we, we have room for for your comment, Maria. All oh, right. Yeah, well, it was just it was actually a leftover from before and I left my hand over and it was when you said what happens when you say this is um, it's not going to get any better. And in the, the first response was, um, you know, oh, oh, my, you know, no goodness. And then the second response in me was a deeper commitment to the practice. Because for me, I think the practice helps me turn, like we have all these channels going on in our minds, you know, all these thoughts and planning and all the different things we want to do. And I think the practice helps us just turn the dial a little bit back into awareness that's always available, that channel that's always available that we forget about sometimes, but, but the other channels are always going on in the background, but we have this, this dial that we can turn with the practice to, be, to, to get right here and really meet life as it is and then the channels like it makes sense what you're saying and what joko says because the channels are always there and they're always chattering they're always doing things they're always wanting to do things but we can always turn that dial it's always available to us constantly 
we just have to remember and that's what the practice does con constantly reminds us to come back to here but we'll always have the other channels and that's why we commit deeply to the practice and we'll always need the practice because the channels will always flick on and we'll always have to turn that dial back <laughs> so that was that was my comment thank you